Hello, everyone. I'm Tom Denford, co-founder of IDcoms. Welcome to episode 26 of Media Snack Meets. Recorded each week in New York, we get to meet the individuals and organizations doing great work to inspire success and drive change within the global media and marketing industry. In each episode, we find out what is behind that success, what it takes to make change in the industry, and what the rest of us can learn from that experience. My guest for this episode is Shalin Dar. He's the co-founder and CEO of Method Media Intelligence. He is one of the world's foremost experts on counterfeit web traffic, which is essentially the raw materials for committing what is commonly known as advertising fraud or ad fraud. Now, ad fraud is becoming an epidemic problem for the industry, and estimates of the proportion of fraudulent ad impressions and web traffic seems to grow each year. And yet, whilst there is a consistent outcry... The industry has struggled to find consensus on how to deal with it. And this is where people like Shalin come in, helping educate marketers on how to change behavior to mitigate the risks. Shalin has been called the fraud crusader, helping to shine a light on the practices of fraudulent advertising, impressions and clicks. And he knows what he's talking about, you see, because he actually used to be on the dark side of that equation for many years, creating the sites that generated fraudulent web traffic. He has since now turned to the bright side and formed a company helping advertisers avoid counterfeit traffic. In this episode, Shalin explains how ad fraud works, how the fraudsters are usually actually just normal people with LinkedIn profiles and business cards, and how marketers can use new technologies to protect themselves now. You can check the full show notes for this episode at mediasnackpodcast.com forward slash 26. So without further ado, please enjoy this fascinating interview with Shalin Dar. Hi, Shannon. Welcome to Media Snack Meets. Thanks for having me, Tom. So I've explained a little bit about your background and where you came from, and we'll dig definitely into that because I think it's a fascinating story, and I love your story, your route into becoming the fraud crusader. Right. For those that don't know, I've used the word ad fraud with you before, and you've kind of corrected me to, right. and to call it a study of counterfeit traffic. Right. But let's just go right back to the basics. Just tell me, what is ad fraud, and why is it a problem for the industry at the moment? I have a two-part answer. One is the industry definition is, I mean, obviously very vague, covers a lot of different things, but ad fraud as an industry definition basically covers anything not good coming up in a media buy. And that includes non-human traffic, different classifications of non-human traffic. It includes purposely non-viewable media in the industry definition, as well as malicious brand safety violations or you know domain spoofing or things of those sort. My definition of ad fraud is far more focused and it doesn't go to just the malicious instances, but it goes to any instance where a marketer is intending to buy ad space or attention of a human and get something entirely different. And we mainly focus on counterfeit web traffic. And I prefer counterfeit web traffic because it's far more specific and everybody can understand what that is, is a visit to a web page and a loading of an ad space that is not done by a human. How does this happen? Like, why is this not an easy thing to identify and fix? So technically, there's lots of ways to address this problem. But Again, it goes back to the industry definition is everything as a whole. And when you're trying to address 15, 20 different types of fraud or misbehavior, you're never going to have that pinpointed solution because verification vendors, 
they just the market is forcing them to do 15 different things. Like they have to detect bots, but also have an engineering department that can crawl and contextually analyze the context and content of a page to see whether this fits with an advertiser's intentions or not. When you're asking one company to do all of those things, that's why there's no real productive solution that comes out at the yeah. other end. Is it fair to say that the counterfeiters are smarter than the no than the police or not? No, no. It's not that they're smarter. It's that more of the supply chain's incentives are aligned towards the quote unquote fraudster. And I say that kind of tongue in cheek because they don't think of themselves as criminal masterminds. They, a lot of them are just employees at a business that attends conferences and they're an ad network or they're some type of ad platform. A lot of it happens outside of the boardroom and then outside of the entry level employees or, you know, kind of the execution people. And it happens with the misalignment of sales incentives and then performance goals where somebody in that organization is forced to find easy routes to see that number appear on their dashboard. You and I met like two or three years ago now, and we were originally introduced by a mutual friend that many listeners may uh, may know or be aware of, a guy called Miko Katila, who was one of the first very early researchers right into ad fraud. Yeah. And I'd got to know Miko, and I had a request of him, which was, how can you make this uh, understandable by humans? Because this is, this is very technical and very complex. It's a high-tech, counterfeit, fraudulent industry. Mm-hmm. I really need someone who can help me translate that into kind of human language for the benefit of marketers. That was really what I thought the opportunity was, right? If, if marketers are going to address this, they need to be able to hear from people who are not explaining it in binary code issues, right. but, but in human terms. Right. And as you know, I said to Miko, when you come across someone who can explain it in human language, like, let me know. And I didn't hear from him for a long time. And then eventually he said, uh, is this guy, Shannon in San Francisco, you need yeah. to meet him. And that's how we got introduced. And then a couple of years subsequent to that, we actually met face-to-face at an event in London, and we've been able to do some work together for, for a couple of advertisers. Yeah. It's been very good. But when we met in London, you'd explain to me the journey that you personally had been on to yeah. get into ad fraud, because yeah. it's not something when you're at school, perhaps you kind of aspire <laughs> sure. to, to become an ad fraud researcher. Yeah. So what was that journey? Because it's kind of fascinating where you started. I started by working for a company as a salesperson that offered marketing services to dental clinics and veterinary clinics. They did that by basically going into the affiliate market space and buying leads for specific geographies. So whether it's a zip code or a state or a province, they would do that type of targeting. Along that process, I went outside of sales to also managing the actual sourcing of these leads. Attending an affiliate summit was kind of my first peek into, oh, there's thousands of people selling traffic with no discrimination of where it's coming from and no seeming limit on the quantity that's available. First time I realized that this type of stuff can be faked is when we got, so this company had a call center and we would process these leads and then find the appropriate dental or veterinary clinic depending on their needs. Once we expanded our budget and basically said, okay, we want these three provinces in Canada and the entire United States, we started getting all types of fake leads. That's when I realized that, oh, okay, they just wrote a program to scrape the directory pages of the geographies that we outlined and then wrote another program to visit our landing page and fill out the lead form 200 times a day, 500 times a day, whatever it was. And so that was the first time I actually kind of had that epiphany moment of, oh, these people can fake whatever we ask them to deliver. 
From there, I actually left Canada, started working at an ad network here in New York. And my job was to grow the operation from two sites that basically had traffic running through it. I didn't know what that meant at the time, but it was basically buy traffic to the site. We have ad partners that have their ad codes on the site. Make sure this generates a profit. Make sure that the revenue from the ads is always higher than the cost of the traffic. We grew that from two sites to 50 sites, from 50 sites to 300 sites. After my first instance of getting 100 sites blacklisted at the same time, my immediate job role response was, okay, I need to always have 100 sites as backup. And then when you're doing all these things and kind of always trying to circumvent the policies of the system, you realize, okay, this is not that hard. But also you realize that the incentives at all of these big ad tech companies, the account directors, the account management, everybody, their incentives are to make you successful as their customer. And as their customer, I was asking to pre-approve 100 sites at once that had no traffic. Why any exchange would do this doesn't make any sense. I don't think anybody would be able to give a public answer as to why this is a legitimate practice, but they did it. And that's when I realized, oh, okay, the system that's in place is not designed to forbid this type of activity. A lot of the ad exchanges actually would court us, take us out to lavish dinners and whatnot, because they looked at the impression volume that we were doing. It didn't matter about the CPMs. It didn't matter that we were selling ad space that sold for 15, 25 cents CPM, which is by no standards premium ad space. We were doing hundreds of millions of impressions, and if you're paying a one-cent CPM ad-serving rate, you're paying quite a bit of money every day in ad-serving fees. That's a lot of revenue for these mid-stage venture-funded companies. Not only were we being successful at circumventing the system, we were actually being rewarded by operators in the system for what we were doing. And at no point did we lie and have to say this is all human traffic or any type of substantiation of the operation. That kind of sparked the interest in, oh, I think there's a lot of education to be done. So I went from there to just being, I can at least enlighten everybody to this world of everything can be faked if you make the expectations at a certain level, which is just technical deliverables, not customers, but can you give me impressions? Can you give me web visits? Can you give me lead forms? All of these types of things can be faked, and I think that's still something that's missing as general knowledge in the industry. Did you get a sense of what the scale was, like how many other people were doing this? Or did you at the time think that you were one special person like filling the system? <laughs> when I started growing that operation from two sites to 50 sites and onwards, I thought I was special. But then I realized that there are thousands of people just like me who wear suits, sweaters, and polish shoes to a conference and come there to do sales and whatnot. And you know, none of this is done as not even a crime, but a malpractice by the people that do it. They're not hiding in the shadows. They're not afraid. Go to any ad tech conference and ask 20 people if they have traffic. You'll find one that is willing to sell you whatever you want. Go to an affiliate summit and go to any booth and ask them where to buy traffic that passes whatever filter you want. And you will find somebody there that's willing to sell it to you. They're not hiding. You don't like go into some back room. Everything ha- like happens out on the conference floor. So it's that moment and that exposure that really ingrained in me that, listen, we need to stop approaching this as super complex criminal enterprise and actually address it as a supply chain problem. 
this is not regulated, right? This is not legislated <laughs> against. To a marketer, they would say, I mean, you're selling me things that don't yeah. exist, right? This is fraudulent. You're stealing my money. Sure. How can this be happening in but the open and in accepted public forums? It's because marketers and then down the chain, nobody has explicitly set those standards up until recently of, hey, I do not want non-human traffic. Even now, it's I want traffic that complies with this one filter vendor that I have integrated into my company, and I want it to pass their standard. So now if you're saying, you're not saying I want no non-human traffic, you're saying I want it to pass vendor A's verification filter. What everybody does down the chain is create traffic that passes that one vendor's verification filter. If there's a market leader that's adopted by the marketers, you know, like a market leader verification vendor that all advertisers or the majority of advertisers are using, there will be a ton of traffic available that will pass those filters. You've explained to me before, I, th I found this really helpful, the story about art forgery. Yeah. Can you share that again? Because that, for me, was when I really made sense, what you've just explained. Yeah. So there was uh, an aspiring artist who what he started doing was recreating lost masterpieces of art. So Picasso paintings that were documented and described, but you know nobody knew where these were. And so he would create those and basically follow the signature points. Some art critic in the past had described what made this unique, that there was a red thumbprint in the top left smudged as a mistake. Uh, on this piece. And he would intentionally do all of those things because all the art critics and gallery owners kind of ascribe to this common standard of these are what these look like. And so when this guy came in with this lost Picasso painting and it fit all of those descriptions, he was making tons they had and a tons of money. They had right? a checklist. Just a simple checklist of things that, that, that in their mind right. would tell you that it was a genuine right. painting. And he recreated all these sold I mean, dozens of these paintings, and eventually got caught. And I think it's a really good example. It just helps marketers understand like how this stuff gets through. Whatever verification technologies we have, or tools to help us identify fraud, yeah. again, they're really just following a checklist of indicators. Right. And so sources of fraudulent traffic or counterfeit traffic are just going to address hitting those 12 indicators, right. get around those, and then it isn't actually human, but it's mm -hmm. judged to be valid Right. Or judged to be salesworthy or something right. that you because, might pay for. I mean, most vendors are relying on behavioral signals that indicate whether it's programmed, automated behavior or whether it's more random human-like behavior. And they're constantly updating those standards based on what they see in the actual live environments. It's not only marketers and media buyers that have access to that. All of these traffic vendors that create this traffic can sign up for any of these services as a customer as well. So they have direct access to what works and what doesn't. To bring that then up to date, so you developed the method, the DAR method, which yeah. was a kind of a method of, of what, identifying or mitigating the impact of counterfeit. It was more focused. There wasn't any technology behind it at the time. Uh, it was more just focused on kind of looking at a media buying process and saying, do you actually have insight into what you're buying? Uh, very, most people in digital advertising and the ad tech space do not interact with log level files, impression level files, just because of the volume and the size of these things. Most people look at PDF summaries of a media buy. Rarely do people look at 
does my DSP number, what I have totaled up as auctions that I've won in my demand side platform, does that match up with my ad server numbers? Typically, you know, larger advertisers use two different technologies uh, for those things. Looking at those types of things is very important. And so it started out with more process-focused things and just doing education on how easy it is for this traffic counterfeiting to be committed, not just talking about, hey, this is how I solve. You have to know what the problem is before you create a solution to address it. Then what led you to set up Method and Method Media Intelligence? Yeah, so we got reconnected on a professional level when he was, he's a web architect by background. His name is Praneet Praneet Sharma. We've known each other since we were eight. Our families do Thanksgiving together. We always had casual conversations, but at the time he was working for a company that did web monitoring for uh, basically pages. So performance monitoring for large, large websites. And what he started to think about was how much robotic traffic can be coming into these sites and also thinking about, oh, wait, they have ads everywhere. Are these robotic visits generating ad revenue? And he called me one day. I remember I was in the car in San Francisco. I just started laughing because he said, you wouldn't believe what I'm seeing. And I started laughing and saying, yes, I would. I would believe everything you're about to tell me. And we teamed up. We kind of put our heads together for uh, one client audit that I had coming up. It was to audit a retargeting company. I wanted his technical help on that project because I didn't know how to build a bot. What I wanted to show the client was we can get retargeted by their ads if we direct a bot to their own page. So what, what is a typical client for Method then? It was a consulting business originally, right, when, right. You, when you started it. But right. now it's increasingly, do you think of yourselves as a technology company? Yeah, now, yeah. now we're primarily a technology company. So we built, uh, so we started in February 2017. And by June, uh, we had a patent application filed for our own bot detection methodology. And that w- that's focused just on detecting, can this device, like can this machine be used by a human? It was a very advanced at the time, just compared to what other vendors were doing, uh, we found that we could do this check in five milliseconds compared to some of the much higher times we saw with other vendors in the space. You know, We used the bot detection for different clients just as a kind of proof of concept. We didn't know what we were going to do with it. After doing lots of historical audits for advertisers and agencies and different ad tech companies, we found that we could actually create a monitoring product where we could use our bot detection, but also combine the accounting principles from our media audits and actually implement ad monitoring on digital advertising campaigns. And so it was kind of merging bot detection and verification with the accounting principles. So rather than saying you have 5% bots, we can tell you exactly how much money, $472,816.14, was spent this month on robotic activity yeah what's an extreme example are there moments where the printing and you've gone oh my god look at the state i think i think there's fewer moments where we're not still shocked at what just the scale kind of it's not always malicious but this high level of dysfunction in marketing organizations where it's a combination of politics it's a combination of egos clashing all mixed in with a complete lack of knowledge of how ads actually get loaded on a web page. You know, we've 
done many, many education seminars where it's a room full of media buyers that on a monthly basis collectively probably spend $100 million. And we, for the first time, we can see it in their eyes that nobody has ever explained to them how an ad auction works, how real-time bidding auction works. So everybody just seemed to be winging it for months, if not years, because not most companies in digital advertising don't have very deliberate and diligent onboarding education seminars. It's just kind of, hey, you came from this type of company, this is what we do, throw you on the desk, get started. When you actually go in to do an audit for an advertiser and say, hey, where are you spending your money? What platforms are you using? And where's the data? There's just a lot of shrugging and looking around the room. You can understand then, you know, sometimes the reluctance of marketers to even open that conversation, right? Because, yeah. and I, I would entirely sympathize if it was me. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with a marketer that's coming to you to ask this question for the first time and avoid making them feel very exposed, maybe feeling silly, asking some kind of silly questions? You know, what's, what's the first, like, comfortable oh. step that they should be taking? We start with the leadership. What are the questions you have? Every question you've been afraid to ask, every question you've avoided asking, let's get those out of the way so that you are in line with what we're doing and you can know why we're doing what we're doing, not just pass it down to you know junior management or uh, accounts people. So we start there in a closed room with a you know, as small of a group as possible. We try to hammer down, do you have the information of... You know, where the money is going, how it's being spent, where it's being spent, what safety measures you have in place, and then go out to the rest of the team from there. That's, I mean, this is obviously a learned process. We've done it kind of haphazard at the beginning where we went on a giant conference call and said, who has the, you know, DSP log files? Has everybody, has anybody here ever seen something but a PDF of where your money was spent? And that does not go well. What's the reason to do this? Does it have like a dollar impact? Are you finding that there's, oh, a, there's a consistent yeah. percentage Immediately. where you know, you're getting rid of waste right, right. in the system? Immediately. In the first month after you know, adoption and initial education, I'd say 90% of our clients have been able to identify 20% waste that they can cut out immediately. That doesn't mean spend less on media. You can divert that 20% from something that was never giving you a return to the channels that were giving you some return or great returns in the past. How do you keep on top of the bad guys, right? Because presumably every time some other, to go yeah. back to your forgery example, as yeah. soon as like another measurement happens, how, yeah. how do you try and keep one step ahead of them? How do you know what to be looking for? I, I don't agree with this whole narrative that this is a constant cat and mouse game. I think you can do broad strokes, but you know, pinpoint it, like strategic identification of something that is clearly invalid. Like what we do is just identifying the machines. We're not going to catch botnet traffic of, you know, if you have some malicious software on your computer that is running ads behind your current live browser, we're not going to catch that because it's replaying your behavior. We're not looking at the behavior. It's on a real computer. But there is a giant, giant portion of web traffic that's coming from automated cloud servers that don't have any ability to be used by a human. They don't have any graphics capabilities. And that's what we patented. And so for the next 5, 10, however long years, this is going to work unless cloud servers start plugging in screens to every one of their CPUs. 
So if the entire cloud hosting industry wants to spend billions of dollars updating all of that, yes, this has become a cat and mouse game. But we focus on identifying broader things that we can pinpoint and then just sticking on them repeatedly. That's the only way to create systematic change, even within an organization. And for those marketers that are, I guess, becoming increasingly aware that, you know, of ad fraud as, a, as an issue being more talked about, I think, more publicly, more frequently, which sure. is really good. Ad fraud seems to have risen to the top, rightly so, because it's the probably the biggest risk, right? So it has the most potential value opportunity. Yeah. But for those that, you know, maybe are now saying, right, okay, this is something that we want to tackle as a business. What's your advice for them? Like, what what do you need to do before they reach out to people like you to start this journey? A reflective taking of inventory uh, within the organization to see how much of my spend is being monitored right now. Uh, I think one of the big surprises we see marketers have is, you know, we start looking into, okay, where all is their current monitoring And they think it's on 100% of their campaigns, 100% of impressions, and it's actually only covering 15%. Somebody in the organization didn't want to rack up a big bill, you know, because a lot of all the verification services are on a CPM basis. So somebody's avoiding racking up too much of a bill because they're under other budget constraints. And then the CMO finds out you are only putting bot detection on 10% of our programmatic buying. Those types of things, just looking at what is being measured how much of it is being measured, what are you paying for it, and can you quantify what your current process is identifying as waste? Can you quantify that into like a monetary amount? The other thing is viewability has been standardized by the browsers. You don't need a third-party viewability measurement company except for the reporting of those viewability numbers. Every major browser is now reporting directly which containers that they're loading are within the viewport because the browser is the one that best knows what parts of a web page are loaded because it's responsible for loading them as you scroll up and down, as you open new tabs or whatnot. So that's been standardized by the browser. Safari was the last one to do that update. Google Chrome has already been doing this for two years. Checking on how much are you actually paying for something that is standardized by the browsers. And then brand safety. You know, we... We see clients that have very strict guidelines on brand safety, and they're not always fully aware of the technical limitations of whatever technology they're using, of being able to prevent you know, an airline company from showing an ad on a news article or a blog post about a plane crash. Being aware of those things is uh, becoming increasingly important. So for those, those marketers that then you know, want to start dipping their toe into this. You've got stuff that you would recommend that listeners can start with to understand this area. Yeah. Um, I can go in order of how nerded out you're going to get yeah. by, <laughs> by these things. So I would definitely start off um, with Bad Men by Bob Hoffman. Yes, excellent. Uh, Bob's been a great, you know, not an official mentor in a sense, but great person to catch up with and just kind of bounce ideas off of with his experience and also his skepticism of everything that's kind of come to fruition in the last 15 years. Bad Men is a great, a great piece that follows his thought process from beginning to end of what he thought was going to happen, what he watched happen, and then what eventually has happened. And he goes over the invalid traffic. He goes over the surveillance aspect of marketing. 
and how a lot of what we look at as very invasive tracking it was kind of originated for the purposes of targeting for different advertising campaigns. So uh, I think that's a great place to start. You never, I never do not enjoy reading something that Bob writes. Mm-hmm. Second would be Attention Merchants by Tim Wu, who's a professor at Columbia. Uh, this was eye-opening to me just when I became aware of the book because I forgot, and I think a lot of us forget, that that's what this industry is focused on. It's merchants of attention. You know, we talk about, you know, we want these KPIs and this. Everything is measuring how can we take human attention and create it into the purchase of a product or service. We get too caught up sometimes in the technicalities and the specifics of our jobs that we forget this is all centered around monetizing attention. And he goes into you know, intentions of different organizations. He goes into the specifics, some, you know, sort of, uh, you know, corporate corruption practices that, you know, he documents along the way. Um, you know, it's not completely focused on digital advertising, but it's a great way to just kind of zoom out of our specific job roles and look at the industry as a whole. Um, then, and this is something Pernit turned me this on to. This is getting quite nerdy. By this now, is, and this takes, is very dense material, you know, all centered around the work of, uh, a professor who, you know, who's passed now, but her name was Donella Meadows. And her focus was sustainability. How do you intervene in a system where consumer products have switched to all plastic packaging? Where do you intervene there? You know, do you go to the manufacturers who have no financial interest to change that? Do you go to the consumers who are very unlikely to add inconvenience to their lives for some marginal benefit in the environment? to themselves, uh, where do you intervene in these types of systems? And, you know, there's just great papers, great books. Um, Thinking in complex systems is kind of the summary of a lot of the work. But there's also uh, a three-page paper that we'll include the link for, that kind of summary document of where do you intervene in a system, and it ranks the optimal places of where you can have the most effect if you can access this change point. And uh, where you're going to have the least effect, but easiest access. I can, I can see the parallels then, then to, to what we're talking about. There's a number of different cohorts of people involved in it. Whilst everybody might agree that this is not a great thing, yeah. nobody, no one particular part of the chain is motivated right. to rise up and, not and change that individually. Yeah. So all of those, those links, very good suggestions, by the way. And I like the idea of starting accessible to nerdy. I think that's not, that might be a pattern that we follow in the future. <laughs> and I've got a feeling that Bob's books are going to be frequently quoted as the first part of that step because uh, he's been a phenomenal force for, for education and simplifying, which is, a, which is a real skill. We've actually, I've got him coming on. He's coming on the show in a few weeks' time. So yes. um, I'm sure we'll be talking more deeply about that. Go to mediasnackpodcast.com forward slash 26 uh, to get links to some of the resources that uh, Shannon's recommended. Give me some hope then. So where do we go from here? Is this going to get better? Is it getting worse? Or where do you want us to be in 12 months time from here? My kind of dream scenario is that the top 50 marketers in the world to do a full diligent audit of where their digital media budget is going, who is monitoring it, who is spending it, who is verifying it, and 
what are the actual results? I mean, do a full, full review. It can just be four people in your organization sitting around and looking at each other and saying, do I have the answers to these questions? Do I have something except a two-page PDF to justify the $50 million that we spent on this platform? And that's the starting point. Good. Even today, we may have inspired a handful of other marketers to, I hope to, so. to start that it's process. It's not very difficult to get started. Shalandar, thank you very much. Of course. Thank you. Who would you like to meet on future episodes? Please let us know at mediasnackpodcast.com, where you will also find previous guests, including leading media executives from companies like P&G, L'Oreal, Mars, and many more plus some of the industry's most provocative thought leaders, people like Professor Mark Ritson and Gary Vaynerchuk. You can subscribe to get new episodes each week, and if you liked this episode and you think somebody else would, then please do share it. Thank you so much for listening.